In this special edition of Monaco's House View, we look back at some of the year's best episodes on the stack. On this episode, we speak to journalist and author Glenn Greenwald on the biggest scoop of the year in Brazil. Plus, Laura Snapes on celebrity profiles and Monaco's editor Andrew Tuck gives us a preview of what's to come in the summer. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Still to come on the show, Laura Snapes tells us about the appeal of a celebrity profile in magazines or newspapers. Some say the genre is dying, but is it true? And Monaco's editor Andrew Tuck previews our latest quality of life issue, plus some exciting summer plans for Monaco. But we start the show in Brazil, where journalist and author Glenn Greenwald lives. Greenwald's best known for his reports revealing the US and British global surveillance programs, the famous Snowden Files. This time, the Brazilian version of his website, The Intercept, has unveiled the biggest scoop of the year in Brazil, detailing how the Operation Car Wash could have been politically motivated. He tells me more about the case and how the Brazilian media reported it. Glenn Greenwald, what a pleasure to have you here on Monaco 24 and our show, The Stack. My first question to you, Glenn, I mean, how does it feel? You have basically the biggest scoop of the year in Brazil. Tell us more about it. How long have you been working on this story? Well, we obviously recognized when we got the archive that it was going to be incredibly significant, not just because of the size of the archive, but because there has been almost no reporting that has been done about the work of Judge Sergio Moro, who has overseen the imprisonment of so many powerful people, including former President Lula da Silva at the time when he was leading the presidential race and the team of prosecutors who have prosecuted all these people. There's been a lot of leaks that have come from them that the media has uncritically reported in Brazil, but there's been almost no reporting about them or what they've been doing. So. That was what was so exciting about this archive is it was the first look into what they have been doing. And and it was given the size of it and the complexity of it. It obviously took, you know, many weeks for us to authenticate it and to figure out what it had and then to start to be able to put together the reporting. And it's interesting, Glenn, that when the story came out, I've noticed, perhaps I might be wrong, that the mainstream media in Brazil was a bit reluctant to cover the story, but suddenly it became unavoidable. And even, you know, the more conservative ones, they had to report. Because, you know, even Sergio Moro now, he's, uh, he was in, a, in the Senate, you know, he had to speak about his actions. But what did you think about the media reaction in Brazil about your story? Well, so I've been a critic of the large Brazilian media for quite a long time, and that's a big reason why... We formed the Intercept Brazil because we felt like there was a space to do genuinely independent and adversarial reporting. There's a very small number of large media outlets in Brazil controlled by a handful of very rich industrialized families who have generally the same political agenda. And they have been almost entirely uncritical of Lava Jato and of Sergio Moro. They have done nothing but revere him and turn him into a hero with maybe one exception, which is Folia of Sao Paulo, the largest newspaper in Brazil, that's been a bit more critical and a bit more distant, but otherwise it's been unanimity. And so I did think that the 
media reaction was going to be hostile or was even going to try and bury and ignore the story. Not just because they're so protective of the now Justice Minister Sergio Moro, but also because in general they feel very hostile toward or competitive with independent media because they've had a monopoly for so long on discourse in Brazil. But I have to say, like, I actually found the reaction surprising. Almost every major media outlet, with one major exception, which is Globo, covered the material pretty fairly and pretty substantively. I mean, one big center-right magazine that has applauded Sergio Moro and Lava Jato for five years came out with an editorial almost immediately saying these revelations are so grave that Sergio Moro should resign as the justice minister and the head of the prosecutorial task force should be fired. Globo, by contrast, which unfortunately remains the dominant media outlet, they tried for about a week ignoring the substance of the revelations and tried to talk about it only as a story about criminal hacking and someone stealing documents. But they became so isolated in how they were talking about the story and the story became so big even Sergio Moro's former supporters saying that what he had done was obviously unethical, that even Globo now has been forced to cover the content of the story, albeit in a way that's always designed to minimize the harm to Minister Moro. And Glenn, will, you know, I know there's still more things that you guys have to report and release to the public. Will there be any sort of contribution with, with some of this media that you've mentioned, like newspapers such as Folha de São Paulo? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to use the same strategy that I used when I reported on the Snowden archive, which is rather than just keeping it for myself or even just only working with The Guardian, I went around the world and partnered with the largest media outlets in order, in part, to make sure the story got as much exposure and impact as it deserved, but also because the more reporters you involve, the more expertise you bring in. So if I was reporting about NSA spying in France or in partnership with Spain or Italy or India or Japan. I worked with the reporters in those countries in order to just make sure that there was more expertise. So absolutely, we're already starting our work with other major media outlets here in Brazil to make sure, given the size and complexity of the archive, that it gets to the public as quickly as possible. And also, there are just a lot of good reporters at these media outlets who have a lot of knowledge about the car wash investigation that will help the reporting. And so, yeah, we're definitely planning on working in partnership with other media outlets. Glenn, one kind of serious question when it comes to Brazil as well. How does it feel when it comes to journalist intimidation there? Because I know there's quite a lot of problems and I know some of the reporters of The Intercept, you know, they're even getting some death threats. I mean, is it quite scary as it seems? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we obviously knew was going to happen. I mean, we have a president of the country, Jair Bolsonaro, who doesn't hide the fact that he admires and, and believes in the military dictatorship that ruled the country from 1964 until essentially 1989 when it re-democratized. He's been very threatening to media outlets. Political violence is a very real threat in Brazil. The fact that my husband is a member of the Federal Congress and a left-wing party and one of our best friends who served um, on the city council with him was brutally assassinated a year ago is still on everybody's mind. And just yesterday, when Sergio Moro went before the Senate, you had numerous senators, including Jair Bolsonaro's son, Flavio, who's a senator, talking openly with Judge Moro about whether we ought to be prosecuted and imprisoned for doing the reporting. So the risks are both legal and physical, but they're also ones that we were prepared for and were expecting and took the necessary precautions that we felt like we could take in order to minimize the risks. But 
you know, there are journalists who cover wars, there are journalists who work with no visibility. Journalism can be a very dangerous profession, and if you're not willing to take risks, it's probably not a profession you should go into. And Glenn, just sort of curiosity for those who don't know the Brazilian presence of The Intercept, when was the Brazilian version of the website found, actually? And is it doing well? Are, are you proud that you definitely, you know, staying there with the website? Yeah, what happened was during the 2016 debate over whether to impeach the then president, Dilma Rousseff, who was elected twice as part of Lula's Workers' Party, you know, that was one of the things that I started noticing was that this was an incredibly momentous thing to do to impeach a president who had been twice elected. And there was almost no dissent in the Brazilian media at the time. The big Brazilian media, the big outlets were almost completely unified behind impeaching her. And I started writing articles just for The Intercept before The Intercept Brazil existed. And we started translating them into Portuguese. And it found a huge audience. I mean, they were some of the most read articles in the history of The Intercept. And we realized that there was a demand, you know, a niche for this kind of reporting that we do at The Intercept in the U.S. in Brazil and decided to kind of ride that wave and created The Intercept Brazil. And, and since then, we've built you know, a team of, I think we now have 15 to 18 young, really aggressive, fearless, incredibly professional reporters and editors, all of whom are Brazilian, who have been doing amazing work in a lot of different cases. But obviously this particular reporting is a whole new level of, of, of risk and, and of journalistic complexity. And the work that they've been doing has been magnificent. I mean, obviously we've committed no errors. We've there've been nothing retracted. No one claims we've made any errors. It's been top-notch journalism from, you know, largely young Brazilian reporters challenging the most powerful people in the country. And to me, that's what journalism is about. That's fascinating, Glenn. And I very much look forward to see what are you guys going to report next. There was journalist and author Glenn Greenwald there speaking to me. Everyone loves a good celebrity profile. When written by an experienced journalist, it can be fun and revealing about the lives of our favorite artists. But the genre is changing, and celebrities are becoming more reluctant to do those in-depth profiles. I spoke to music writer and deputy music editor for The Guardian, Laura Snapes, who tells me more what makes a good celebrity profile. It's interesting because on one hand they seem to be dying, but on the other hand the ones that exist are kind of better than ever. Fewer and fewer of the top tier celebrities are doing them. Like Frank Ocean, just he's on the cover of Days and Confused right now, but there's not a profile. He's answering questions put to him by his fellow celebrities. And it's vapid. It's really vapid. I think ID had Solange on the cover recently and there was a profile, but it was written by one of her friends and it like it was not interesting or interrogative at all. You know, Beyonce hasn't sat for an interview, I think, since 2011. Taylor Swift hasn't sat for one since 1989. She didn't do anything on reputation oh there was a tiny one recently but it was only small the biggest stars in the world are shunning interviews because you know with social media and everything they can maintain complete control over their personas but then at the same time I feel like there's been a huge resurgence of them and almost like a cult of fandom around the people who are writing them if you look at the New York Times people like Taffy Bredessa Ackner I think she's made a complete new art form of it Katie Weaver I think has really upended that format as well there are so so many great people there doing it Amanda Hess and if you look around other publications as well there are some real star names coming through so there's an appetite for it from readers, if not necessarily from the world's greatest stars. Because I agree with you, like the celebrity on celebrity interview, I'm not saying all the time, but most of the time it's quite vapid, it's quite, you don't get anything new, it feels very safe, it feels that they're not touching in, in the things that actually the fans would like to know. Yeah, exactly, and 
I think one of the reasons that the celebrities are really scared of these kind of interviews is because, you know, there are certain gossipy things they don't want to have to talk about. But a good profile is not about, you know, elucidating gossip. It's about, like, actually defining the person who's at the heart of all of this, which and I think is true for everybody, not just celebrities. Quite often it's the people who are around you who can see you better than yourself. You know, it's very difficult to self-define, but somebody might be able to pick up on those qualities and spending time with you. And one of the reasons why I decided to choose this topic for this week's tag, Madonna's profile on The New York Times. I mean, she enjoyed the pictures uh, with her friend JR, but I don't think she was a big fan of the profile. And she even wrote on social media, like, I absolutely, you know, hate it. I wouldn't even give five minutes of my time. She so, compared spending time with that journalist to being raped and yeah. then said, I can use that because I've been raped. And it was like, okay. That was quite extreme because I understand, you know, Madonna criticized, you know, uh, ageism in, in reports. And as a fan, I do agree with that. What, do you, what did you think about that profile in particular? I mean, on one hand, she had to have been aware that it was going to be about her age because the photos, which are amazing, as you said, are, you know, massive black and white pictures of Madonna in her heyday with slashes through them and then current Madonna peeping through them. So she had to be aware that that juxtaposition was going to be there. But I did agree with her. I didn't think it was a very good piece at all. You know, I think one of the pitfalls that you sometimes see in profile writing is the person going into it, they have expectations around the star and they also need the star to represent their image of the star to them and so the writer in this piece you know she clearly wanted to go in and talk to Madonna about aging and menopause and maybe things that I think she feels as a woman um, of maybe the, roughly the same kind of age as her and when she didn't get that it kind of turns a bit bitter and then there's you know a further development in the piece where she says oh maybe it's not Madonna's job to do these things for me and it's like well really no like everybody else worked this out at the beginning the profile is not a place for you to work out your particular anxieties and use a star as a mirror and I think that's one of the things that it really gets wrong also as well Madonna said that she was ageist but I think the, the writer showed I don't know her weird disdain for youth as well right in the beginning of the piece she sees Madonna playing at an award ceremony and she's surrounded by much younger pop stars and she's so sneery about them and about young pop fans saying that you know there's no way that they really recognize what's here in their wake but this generation of young pop fans are probably more informed than anybody who's come before them because they've got it all at their fingertips and fandom is predicated on deep forensic knowledge of things. Another problem perhaps was the lack of conversation about music you know especially like with female singers you see this a lot of the time you know let's concentrate on the clothing or with the age or anything else so it would be lovely to read like a long piece about Madonna only about the music itself but there's been some good examples I think there, there's one that you particularly like about Mariah Carey what was it on Pitchfork? Yeah it was it was a Pitchfork interview from last year and it's just a Q&A it's not a profile like the Madonna one mm. but you know Mariah Carey is somebody who in a sort of a similar way to Madonna, has been lambasted as a diva for her whole career and not taken seriously. And, you know, if she has a public reputation, it's that she asks for a bowl of M&Ms with all the yellow ones taken out and, like, a room full of white cats and all these things that probably aren't true. But in this interview, the journalist who's called Alex Frank, he sits down with her and he takes her seriously as a songwriter, a producer. I didn't even know that she produced her own music, which is my bad for never finding that out. But the cultural image of Mariah Carey looms so large that you don't, think that of her it's not like the first thing that comes to mind or the first thing you're told about her and they have a really rich conversation about songwriting and process and then through going in through that angle he also gets lots of personal stuff out of her as well because I think the impression that you get is she feels like she's being taken seriously by this person who knows everything about her and so she can have like a, a conversation on a good level with them Often artists say, I just want to talk about the music. And that is boring because nobody wants to hear, you know, unless you're talking to Sound on Sound magazine, nobody wants to hear about meticulously how you made a song because it's alienating because most people can't do that. To hear Madonna talk about, like, the art of craft and songwriting in that way and the specific decisions that she makes, I think that would be really interesting. We're discussing the Mariah Carey article. Is there any other iconic celebrity profiles that you've read 
throughout your lifetime? Could be even something recent that you'll be able to recommend and say, you know what, that's how you do it. Oh God, there's so many of them. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Taffy Brodessa Ackner is the absolute queen of them at the moment. Like the one that she wrote of Gwyneth Paltrow and her wellness empire goop last year, it was incredible. Despite what I was saying about the Madonna one, you know, one of the bad bad things about it is the writer is using Madonna to work out a load of her own anxieties. To an extent, Taffy does this in the Gwyneth piece. You know, she writes about the wider culture of wellness and why women are reaching towards it. I thought that wellness was just snake oil, but she writes, when women have been disbelieved about the experiences of their own bodies for so long, is it any wonder that they turn to alternative medicine? And she also writes about her own personal feelings about how she can't live up to this kind of image and it's an amazing piece it must be 10,000 words but it's a real ride it's, there's so much great stuff going on you also write profiles time to time or you I mean you talk about pop, pop culture as well yeah what was your experience with a celebrity how was the PR machine these days is it, is it harder to write a nice profile without so much interference American journalism gets much better access than you do in the UK in America you know I mean if you're writing for one of the top tier publications like GQ or the New York Times you're going to be able to demand two or three meetings with somebody and actually have them be substantive, meaningful interactions where you like go to their house or you do something with them. So it all feels very personal and very tailored. In the UK, it's incredibly hard to get that because most of the publications are happy with an hour after a photo shoot. PRs and managers and bands and artists are not keen to provide more than that. I have had a couple of longer interactions with people. I did a long piece about Robin last year where I interviewed her in Ibiza when she was there DJing and then I went to Stockholm and I saw her working on the production of her show and I interviewed her again there. So that was a bit more immersive. But probably still, I think I only spoke to her for three hours, which that's probably a quarter of what somebody like Taffy spends with somebody. Even though it was a relatively short period of time, you just get so much more out of somebody. And when you building up trust with them in a one-on-one -on -one encounter and then you meet them again, you have like a level of familiarity where they feel comfortable to actually talk to you and go a bit deeper on things. I mean, can you imagine that Robin is quite a nice person to, to deal she with, right? She is exactly as lovely as you would hope she would be. Fantastic. Yeah. As a fan, I'm happy. There was Laura Snapes there talking to me about what makes a good celebrity profile. And finally on the show, we'll keep things in-house. I welcome Monaco's editor, Andrew Tuck, in studio to tell us all about the latest quality of life issue when Monaco reveals the most livable cities. Guess who won this year? It's interesting. Since we've uh, been running Monaco some 13 years, it still is, for me, kind of one of the most important issues of the year. I think because actually when you go back to year one of Monocle when it came out, it was kind of a, a breakthrough moment for the company that this was the magazine that really caught people's attention. And we've repeated the survey that we've done in the magazine since year one, every single year. And it's a survey of the top 25 cities to live in the world. And that's evolved over time and we've added new metrics and we've tried to expand the number of cities that, that, that come into the mix. But it's always been quite exciting to see the list come out. The research is interesting. And it also forces you to think about something very important for us here at Monocle, how you make a great city and how you make uh, a great place to live. Did you add any new metrics for this year's? Uh... Yeah, so this year they, they looked a little bit at um, the age mix of cities, you know, places that are more vibrant or more interesting for business, for our lives to unfold. And so even though I'm no youngster myself, we actually kind of weighted it a little bit towards places that had kind of good university populations, you know, that had good opportunities for younger people as well. And then we've, we've kind of 
kept looking at this, the way that you can set up a business and run a business and the nighttime economy and, and freedom to do things and a little bit of laissez-faire attitude here and there and trying to make it so that it's not only the most pressed, perfect cities that kind of get to the top of the rankings, although they, they tend to still anyway. I think you had a lot of say in this cover, didn't you, Andrew? <laughs> there, there's a bearded man saying, urbanists do it better. <laughs> yes, a, a very nice illustrated cover. I have the show called The Urbanist. And uh, I like the cover line, although actually it was Tyler who came down in the end and we were like talking about cover lines and uh, he's like, oh, no, 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 let's do urbanists do it better. But it's a great sunny summer cover and for us it's interesting when you design this cover because it sticks with people for two months it's a double issue and you want something that when you see it on newsstand even for us that you feel it remains fresh across the summer we've had some miserable weather here in london but it's it's a bit of beacon of bright bright yellow when you see it on the newsstand but it's not only, uh, you know, uh, Monaco magazine. We also have the Monaco Drinking and Dining Directory coming soon. With a, again, I love the cover. It's quite funny in a way. <laughs> yes, I got into trouble for suggesting that maybe the gentleman on the cover looks a little bit like our fashion editor, Jamie Waters. He pointed it does. out. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Although Jamie pointed out that the, the cartoon version of himself uh, has a rather large nose. And he also disputed that he would eat, the, the cartoon gentleman is eating spaghetti. And he's like, I wouldn't eat that many carbs. I think, I'm not sure which he was more offended about the, the big nose or the carbs. But anyway, we've been, for, for some years now, been doing the forecast that comes out at the end of the year, which looks at the year and more ahead. Then we've had the the world of travel covered in The Escapist. And now, about a year ago, we added the Drinking and Dying directory. So this is the second outing for this magazine. And it does what it says on the cover. It comes out once a year, and it's a deep dive into the world of food and drink. Now, f for us at Monocle, we've always had a kind of interesting take on this. As the world of you know, molecular cooking rose up and kind of has dissipated again now. As food trends became a little bit more extreme, we found a comfortable place for us to talk about food that was well-cooked, enjoyable, amazing. But there was also part of your social life, of your work life, you know, that in many ways the best restaurant is a place where you feel comfortable going, they know your name, you can fit. We don't always want the most extraordinary food. We want food that matches our temperament, our life, and the way that we live. So many of the things that are covered in the magazine are not the most expensive, not the most uh, extreme by any measure, but are really about kind of food and drink culture, again, often based around cities or about doing things simpler, good ingredients, people going back to the land, People in one instance here growing wine around Vienna. So the, the city of Vienna is actually quite a big producer of wine, of great wines. And they have this tradition of these small vineyards which are allowed to kind of open up and serve their own wine direct to you at the vineyard. And we dipped into that culture as well. And I, I must point out, this was edited by my colleague, uh, Josh Fennett. And uh, I'm very happy to kind of be nudged down the masthead. He's done an extraordinary job. He, he's passionate about the subject and when you have a magazine that comes out once a year you can either leave it all to the last minute or unlike him he's really plotted this out over the year thinking about all the stories so when it came in I think everybody was just like okay this is a real passion project it looks amazing and Andrew we're not done yet apparently the summer weekly is back <laughs> when yeah okay so we we have a few more weeks before we dive right back in but uh, yeah, the summer series of newspapers will be coming back, another four papers. 
And the the fourth of those, as last year, will be a fashion preview for the upcoming season. And the team will be kind of whirring away on those. But in between, we have um, the Monocle Conference next week in Madrid. We have some other kind of one-off projects that we're beginning to investigate. And uh, there's always the world of books and, of course, radio. So, yes, as you said at the beginning of this interview, there's always plenty to do here at Monocle. Thanks, Andrew. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hull. If you have any comments or queries, then feel free to write to me at fp at And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monocle.com or on iTunes or on SoundCloud or whatever social media you want. But before we go, a little song for you. In the latest Monocle issue, I wrote about the best songs to listen on a dance floor this summer. This is one of them, Clara Luciani, La Grenade. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Oh.